You are listening to South by Southwest Sessions. So I want to dig into Fish Priest because I just finished eighth episode and I got questions. Okay. Uh, but before we do that, we want to share a never before heard trailer from Fish Priest. So roll that, guys. I used to think justice was a real thing. Then I became a cop. The Bronx in the early 90s, crack was king. I worked undercover. We drove out the most dangerous crime syndicate the city had ever seen. But we did it wrong. Yo, yo, Thomas, man. My friend, my friend. Thomas, stop it. Turns out we only made him stronger. We are the solution. We are the peacemakers. Justice is just a thing we tell our kids to make them sleep better at night. If they're back, they're coming after me. In this line of work, sometimes your only job is staying alive. Give me your gun. You're out of control, Tommy. Give it to me. Fish Priest, an audible original, written by Mike Batistic, produced by Tree Fort Media, and starring Ethan Hawke. Premieres May 19th, only on Audible. Kelly, I want to come to you first. All right. Tree Fort has produced so many podcasts, true crime, sports. What was it about this scripted content, this Audible original Fish Priest that you guys wanted to get into? Well, taking a, a quick step back, I came from uh, a, a TV career. I started in documentaries, then moved into a lot of unscripted entertainment um, and became a studio exec. And part of becoming a studio exec is working on a lot of projects that are sort of just foisted upon you. Um, and some are great, many are not. And I really came to a point where I creatively wanted to do something completely different. Um, and so starting Treefort as an audio first company, uh, we really wanted to work on projects that could blaze new ground. I think one of the most exciting things about audio is there's, uh, there's sort of genre defining areas that haven't been sort of set yet. Um, and Fish Priest is a project that you know, if we were working a scripted TV show, it would have taken years and years to put together. It would have cost, you know, $100 million to do it. Uh, and with audio, this was a way that we could really roll up our sleeves, dive into the creative process, uh, embrace uh, incredible writing, and also build a world uh, that was a period piece. So it's set in the early 90s in the Bronx. Um, and, you know, in times of COVID and, and so forth, we clearly weren't going to go film that and shoot that in, in real life. Um, so it was just really exciting to be able to build that world and create it in, in audio and uh, really make this thing come alive. And you talk about the script and the writing is amazing. Where did the script come from and the story come from? Um, well, it actually came from a, a, a friend who lived right across the street from me. We've been talking for years about trying to work together. Uh, this great writer named Mike Batistic, uh, who wrote on The Affair and The Americans. Um, and we were always trying to find something to do. And when I started Treefort, uh, literally over the fence, I said, hey, Mike, you know, what do you got going on? You got anything, any passion project, anything you love that you want to just get made? He's like, oh, well, yeah. Ah, oh, Fish Priest, yeah, I got this one thing. And I was like, let me read it. And I, I got it later that day, and I just sat there and read the whole thing over, over, the, over the, the weekend. And was like, dude, how, how have you never told me about this? This is incredible. Uh, and that's really how it sort of started, just a conversation over the fence with neighbors. 
like Wilson, that just makes me think of like, you know? Yeah. A little throwback. Uh, what did you think about the script when you first saw it, or what drew you to this project, Ethan? Me? Yeah. Um, well, I, I find it interesting, even like when you just played the trailer, nobody knew where to look. Uh, yeah. You, you, you know, it's, it's this we're all like so conditioned to, to look somewhere. We're being direct. And I, I find it something about the audio and the radio play mm. is you are right. It's in an, people are experiencing it there. They want it right now. And there is new terrain to be mined there. Mm. And it's simultaneously a throwback. I remember being a kid and Oh, you know, you'd see some Orson Welles would be and they'd be making the sound of rain or the sound of a cop car coming by. And I was like, God, that's such a cool art form, these radio plays. And because it allows your imagination in a way you can do it better than they would film it. You, you know, you, you can film it in your own brain and see it how you want to see it. And uh, I, I just wanted to experiment with doing that. And so this piece of writing in and of itself it's a great piece of crime drama. It felt like a Richard Price novel. It felt a little Jim Thompson-y. It felt, um, I just enjoyed it. It was a good story. And you're right, and we could do it in a fraction of the time and give the audience the same amount of substance. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's the quality of what you're being given, the story, the metaphors, whatever it's going to do to your brain is the same as it would be if you were making it a, a film that would take four years in development and probably get crushed and you'd probably cast the wrong people anyway and it wouldn't ever work. <laughs> and now you could just put it, pitch it into people's imaginations. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to experiment with it and see what it was like because I've been acting for what feels like a million years and I've never done a radio play. Hmm. I've never done this and, and it seems like if it was good, it might be a fun thing to do more of. Yeah, well, it's good. So I can see you doing more of it. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So Kelly, you mentioned that this is set in 1993 in the Bronx. It's gritty New York. We've got the AIDS epidemic, the crack epidemic. Kind of paint the picture for me of the world that Fish Priest is. Sure. So um, the writer Mike uh, grew up in New York. Uh, knew you know knew what that city sounded like. Uh, knew what it felt like at that time. Uh, I, I'm from the Northeast as well. Um, and just felt like we knew what that world sounded like, but sort of constructing that world was quite quite a challenge in many ways because we really were trying to be as authentic to the sound as the story is authentic, you know, to these these characters. Um, and Tom Monahan, who's uh, heads up audio for Tree Fort, he really, really, really got obsessed with this yeah. to the point where he went to New York, he had binaural microphones and found himself crawling around bridges and, <laughs> you know, the marshes of Queens and in subways and trying to, you know, capture and, and find these layers of sound that could be used. And it's tricky, right? Because... Even the sirens you hear in New York now, they don't sound like the sirens from before. Right. You know, where do you find the sound of pay phones? And, you know, we were really trying not to use Foley and, and sound library and all that kind of thing. So, you know, as much of the sound design as possible that could actually be mm -hmm. sort of gathered in the wild. Um, Tom was, was a man on a mission. Yeah. And it really came through because when you listen to Fish Priest, you know, it's, it's like a radio drama, but it's a whole nother level, right? It's sort of, it, it references that, but 
the, you know, we really, our approach was thinking about a Netflix show or, or a Marvel film, but taking, taking the visuals away yeah. um, and, and really embracing the concept of the theater of the mind. You know, we're all looking at screens all day long. My kids are staring at them. I'm always like, how do we, how do we get off of this? Mm -hmm. And I find it so hard to read actually, to just sit down and read. But with audio, you know, you can find those, those periods in your day where you're walking the dog or doing the dishes or whatever you're doing um, to, to just sort of immerse yourself in that world and it activates a different part of your brain. Um, so just getting back to the, you know, early 90s in the Bronx, I mean, it, it's, it's a crazy, scary place to be. Yeah. Um, but you know, I feel like we 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 got really close, if not you know, nailed what what I would imagine that was like back then. And we don't want to give anything away, but what is the plot of Fish Priests? Because I will be honest, they kind of keep you guessing till the end. Like episode eight, I was like, I don't, I I need to listen to this. Like I don't know where we're going. And then you're like, oh, this is amazing. I mean, without getting too deep into it, um, you know, the the character that Ethan plays, Tommy Fish Priest Barth. Um, you know, he, he was a former cop and he went undercover and, you know, things went sideways as they tend to do uh, when, when you're an undercover cop and you're, you're battling a, a real life gang. Um, and so he's essentially kicked off the force. He's uh, having catastrophic issues with family. Um, you know, he's estranged. He's trying to put things back together. He's basically a, a bail bondsman with, with his, his old friend, and he's slowly trying to kind of make things right. Uh, but it's pretty, you know, in, in his world, it's impossible for him to make things right because mm -hmm. uh, there, there really is no right. Mm. Ethan, let's talk about Tommy Fish Priest Bar. Yeah. What, uh, how do you describe him? Well, I don't know. The, for me, I had a really positive experience as a young man doing training day. And I got to do all this research playing, you know, to, to play that cop. And we did ride arounds in New York and the Bronx and Patterson, New Jersey. And we did ride arounds in L.A. And I really tried to immerse myself. That was a really big part for me and a, a really uh, huge opportunity in my life. And I wanted to do a good job with it. And you I just got really interested in the police force and those stories and the way that it intersects with the community yeah. and how much you can tell real people's stories and, and see issues of diversity and see issues of poverty and see issues of all the real life stuff you read about in the newspaper. The cops touch it mm -hmm. and they touch it in a way that isn't, uh, it's, it's more interesting to me than a Marvel thing because it has a tremendous amount of action, but it's not imaginary. It's real life. You can see people's real life issues. A mom trying to deal with her kids and a dad who's, you know, out of prison and trying to get back with his wife. And But it's full of all this action, but it's real life stuff. And so I find that really interesting. This character, in my mind, was, you know, meet Jake from Training Day yeah. 20 years later. Things didn't go the way he wanted. Things really and, didn't go the way yeah, he wanted. And, but I, so my imagination just took off from there because that was something I, I could build on. But what I find amazing about the Audible experience is, for example, in a movie, if I want to do, we want to do a flashback scene where you see him 
20 years ago, well, do you cast a younger guy? Do you do some digital effect? Right. Do I try to like wear a ton of makeup? I mean, and this, you can really do it. And, the, and it, there's no bump on the audience's imagination. They're not asked to invest in it. The voice is such a powerful tool for the actor. And I, I've been, uh, Richard Linklater did a new uh, animated movie. And they, I was listening to Jack Black's performance, which probably, you know, took him only a few days, but it's a huge performance yeah. on top of the movie. Right. All of Jack Black's, what he has to offer a, as an actor, which is huge and immense, his wit, his intelligence, his pathos, whatever you want to say, is mm -hmm. all present and lending itself to the movie. And I was saying, this is just fascinating, the power of the voice. Right. I mean, it's why Orson Welles did have such a huge career, because yeah. his voice was amazing. And it's the actor's biggest tool. And it's just in full force in audio because your imagination just keys into all the nuance of it. When it's bad, it ruins it. We all know that feeling when you get an audio book or something, you like, listen to three seconds of it. Oh, not listening to this for four hours. I hate that voice. Um, <laughs> you don't know why. It's just yeah, not right. Totally. And, and um, so I, I don't know. The, the actor in me really enjoyed playing this character. I had the experience... It was a really, str can I tell about the experience of uh, when we did it? Please, yeah. The recording it's, experience? Yeah, it was sure. really interesting, because here I was stuck <laughs> on location. I was in Budapest. I, I, I was doing this Marvel job. I was away from my family. And this, I was like, I disappeared into this recording studio in Budapest. I was time traveling back to New York. But it kind of felt like I had done a play that weekend. Mm -hmm. I, like the same high that I get off yeah. of really giving a performance of losing yourself. That's how you, when mm. you lose yourself in a character. I would do this for four or five hours, take a lunch break and walk outside and be like, wait a second, I'm in Budapest? <laughs> I, I, I felt like I was back in New York and I felt the cathartic experience of, that you, in a positive way, of telling a whole story because we did it in such huge chunks and we recorded it. I felt that high that you get off of like coming off stage. Yeah. And I, I couldn't make sense out of it because I wasn't being filmed, there was no audience, but it was just, it was a performance. Mm -hmm. And you know, um, all the other people working on it were so passionate. You know, these people, because yeah. I, I was in Budapest, they were in LA, they all got up at like 2 a.m. Yeah, what was that time change? For me. I don't know, I didn't want to ask because I felt so guilty. <laughs> um, they all were like drinking coffee, but it was really, you know, we were on Zoom, I was being directed, the other cast members yeah, were on Zoom, and it was just a completely unique experience. It was something I'd never had before. You, you're talking about your voice, and I want to unpack that performance, but first, let's play a clip, actually, of Tommy Fishbury, so we can hear him first, and then I want to kind of dissect how you created this character. Okay. What do you mean I got, I got to wait a whole week? <laughs> you can't call the bitch right away. So fine, though. Yeah. Excuse me, guys. Sorry, man, private party? What's that? He said private party. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, I'm on the list. Yo, 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 hold up, pal, hold up. Hey, 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 look, man, I just need to talk to Luis, okay? I'm his bail bondsman. He didn't check in this morning. Okay, first, I don't know who Luis is. Second, you better remove that metal stick or whatever the fuck it is from out your belt, or else you're gonna catch a beatdown. Uh, no. Uh, why don't you turn around and get back on that train, okay? Wait, are, th are those the new Adidas? Nah, man, nah, the Fila. What, they, they comfortable? Yeah, they're a little com Wait, man, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> 
just needed to see Luis. You tell me. You missed your check-in this morning, all right? I'm a little surprised I found you so fast, to be honest. Yeah. All right, so first, I think we should de describe what fish priest means, because that clip sort of showed us. Kelly, do you want to break that down? Yeah, so just in, in brief, um, you know, the writer Mike Patistic was really trying to... to think about, you know, what, what this guy, after leaving the police force, had left him really damaged, and, and you know, his, his weapon, his gun, you know, he was quite sort of prolific as a cop with it. And so, you know, when he was off the force, he was really trying to make a clean break from that, that level of violence and was trying to put things back together and, you know, not kill any more people unless they really had it coming. Um, and, and so, you know, he basically took on this, this fishmonger, which is, uh, you know, another term for fish priest. The idea is that a, a fish priest sort of ushers a fish, you know, you're working at the docks and you're ushering a fish in, into the next world so you, you can then eat it. Um, but, you know, this, this became his, his tool um, and, and that's really, where it comes and from. he would beat the crap out of people with it. Um, and even- Only if they deserved it. If That's they right. deserved That's it. Right. That's right. Let's talk about Tommy, that voice that you, you gave him, like what informed that? How did you decide to play Tommy Fishpaste? I don't know, you know, it was, it's hard in a way, I've had this experience before uh, where if you come in on the first day of rehearsal for a play and everybody gets handed their scripts, and everybody's really excited and tense, and there's this kind of energy that happens, which is everybody just throws themselves at it, and it often goes fantastic. You sit at this first day of rehearsal, and it's amazing. Everybody gets really excited, and then you rehearse for four or five weeks, and everybody gets lost and confused, and the it gets terrible, and nobody knows what they're doing, and it gets really bad, and then you, the audience comes and you work and it kind of comes back together. There's this, and I mentioned that to say, sometimes there's a first thought, best thought thing where there's an energy, beginner's mind, whatever you want to call it, where if you just let your imagination go at something immediately and don't think too much about it. Uh, and if the writing is good, it can really work because the writing can carry you away. And if you start thinking a lot, then you have to do a lot more work, mm. is what I, I mean to say. So you're saying he just kind of came out working. I love crime fiction. You know, I did Training Day, Brooklyn's Finest, um, Assault on Precinct 13. I've done, a, I've played a lot of cops. Yeah. You can't be an American actor and not play cops <laughs> for very long. And, and, uh, but luckily, I love it. So, but I, so I know the world. I was in New York in the 90s, uh, and it's a part of my imaginative vocabulary, so to speak. So I just threw myself at it. And this guy, he's a really fine writer. And it was, it was, he was so passionate about it that any questions we had, I mean, his, this was really important to him. You felt like yeah. when I was over Zoom with him, it was like life or death. No, <laughs> we got to get this right. And uh, I respond well to that kind of passion and enthusiasm. So I just followed his lead. Yeah. I mean, if I was going off track. Otherwise, I, it just seemed obvious and fun to me. Yeah. And it really was life or death for us, frankly, um, <laughs> because we had a really limited amount of time with Ethan. When, when we first uh, approached your agent about the role, you know, she warned us. She was like, he loves the material. He really responded to it, but he's doing this very big Marvel film. 
it's probably not gonna be available for like six months or something. And we just kept kind of working on her. Uh, we kept checking in, hey, you know, we're flexible. We can do it anytime, we'll do it at night, we'll do it on the weekend. And finally, you know, after prodding enough, she finally was like, well, you know, he's got a, he's got a weekend, he's willing to do it on a Saturday and Sunday, uh, but he's in Budapest and, you know, you'll have to get up at 12 o'clock in the morning and yeah. what have you. But, you know, that was like a dream come true for us to have, you know, that time with you. And I appreciated it too. That was the only way it was going to work out, you know, because I really did want, I really wanted to do it. Yeah. Um, but it, the whole world felt upside down at that moment too. Uh, so I was glad we made it work. I did feel really bad the other actors had to get up so early in the morning. It was... Everyone was thrilled, honestly. Uh, but there was no room for error. I mean, with a lot of script, you know, the, these kind of projects, you've got, Maybe you have a week, maybe you have four or five days, um, you know, not only two days and, and that's it. And we were just so incredibly fortunate that you got the character instantly. The mics came on, you, you know, you were in the character immediately and we were just, you know, looking at each other on Zoom as two-dimensional boxes <laughs> thinking, holy shit, this guy is freaking incredible. Like, obviously. I believe it was 850 lines in two days. So it was yeah. in, that's impressive. What I was surprised about was the quality of the writing was such that it felt like it was adapted from a classic novel or something. Yeah. It was a really, it was a wonderful page-turning script. And, you know, I get sent a lot of scripts, and it was really fun to, it was just, the, the quality was so high. Uh, and you're right. The fact that it's on Audible gives you a little more creative freedom because it could be more edgy, it could be more dark, and you're not going to get noted to death by 10,000 executives where everything gets dissipated truth. or everything changes. Because it really did, it felt like one of those little badass novels you'd read. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think Richard Price is a perfect example. It's re it feels authentic like Richard Price. It, it's a plot you, you know, a page turner. I don't know. I, I loved it. So I was happy that you guys made the time for it to work out because I wanted to do it. During the, re go ahead. Just re real quick note on Audible. I mean, we, we were so fortunate that Audible was our partner on it. Um, they gave us, you know, all the rope we needed to hang ourselves essentially and had a very light touch. Um, you know, Josh Poole is our creative exec. He was incredible. Um, Stella McGrother put the deal together and, and they, they just gave us every tool we needed. Um, and I'm so used to coming from a TV career, I'm used to notes and network notes and you're just like, oh God, 20 pages of notes, what do I do with this? And they would just say, this is amazing, go, <laughs> just go, do your thing. Um, and we had to pinch ourselves, you know, that, that this kind of partner existed and, and supports this kind of storytelling. Yeah, I mean, that's a testament to their commitment to expanding this world of audio, right? Like, Audible is no, for me, the voice in st storytelling is Audible and audio storytelling. So that makes sense that they would allow you to be creative, which feels like a luxury. A Absolutely. Bit. Yeah. It's a dream. So, Ethan, the process of shooting sounds not traditional. You're doing it over Zoom. What was the interaction? Did you have any, any interaction with other actors? Were you playing against stand-ins? Like, what was the recording experience like for you? Well, it was just totally surreal. I mean, I had this uh, Hungarian sound mixer. I don't know. He, I, I felt like, I don't know, he was my best friend for a few days. I mean, because I was basically playing it to him. I mean, I had these other actors on Zooms, you know, some of them would play multiple roles. And this director who, I mean, he was 
like all directors, nervous and passionate and wanted it to go great. Uh, I find that there is this amazing feeling if you really immerse yourself in a novel, it goes to a different space in your brain than watching a movie. It's a different experience. It's somehow more intimate. Uh, it's harder to do. It takes more work from the reader than, mm -hmm. you know, it's such a passive experience to watch a movie. And this is an art form that it goes to that same space that a great novel does, but it, you can do it while you're washing the dishes or walking the dogs or going on a long hike or driving. And, and it makes your time more valuable because yeah. it, because yeah as opposed to just dumbing your brain down or turning it off in some way. Uh, and I like having a break from looking at screens. I like using my own imagination. And I mention that because that's what the performance is like. Mm. It, 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 it's strange, I mentioned the mixer because he, you know, we'd take these little breaks and he smoked and we'd go outside and talk and he'd go, I like that scene. And you talk <laughs> about it, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it becomes very real to you. Yeah like you're shooting a movie or, and yet it's not, it's in this imaginative landscape. And there's even something nice about not worrying about what you look like. Mm. You know, I spent a lot of life worrying about what we look like. And, and, and I love getting to do the performance and just being silly and stupid in the room and just wanting it to sound right. Mm -hmm. uh, because you know, it, I often think when I don't like a movie, it's often because it sounds wrong. You know, I, I'm obsessed with the sounds of movies, like when, you, when we're working on them. You know, there's an authenticity when things sound right and when they don't. And we, our, our body just intuits it immediately. Uh, so I, I don't know if that answers your question about what it was like to perform, but it, it did feel much more like doing a play, mm. the way it feels to me. Uh, yeah. You talk about the sound and the soundscape of this is incredibly powerful. I actually listened to all eight episodes while walking around New York City. So it felt like this very immersive experience. Um, but New York City is very much another character in Fish Priest. So Kelly, can you just take me through some of the decisions your engineers made, the audio team made, just of like creating this sound because it does feel so authentic and real. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that that was one of the challenges because the city is such a character and, and all of the, the scenes and, and the various locations, we tried to make them feel, you know, as uniquely authentic to, to that place as we could. And so there was, you know, we were really playing with the idea of the sound of New York sort of ebbing and flowing and, and sort of expanding. In some areas, when we're out on the streets, it kind of really fills, you know, the the speakers, and then and then it contracts as as things get more intimate and as as we're in dialogue. And it, I, I think in general, we we scored this a lot less than than you might expect. Yeah. Um, we really tried to to keep it as gritty and as layered as possible because there's not just sort of one sound in New York. It's it's always this cacophony of, of layered sound. Um, and so we just really tried to, to stack that um, and, and make it be its own sort of subliminal character in all of this. 
and it gets really overwhelming in, in some areas. I mean, it, in the same oppressive way when you're in the city and sirens and buses and construction and, you know, all hell's breaking loose. You know, we tried to really, you know, th throw the kitchen sink mm -hmm. at, at your ears in certain areas, but then really, really dial back um, so that you don't know why you're feeling the way you're feeling, but suddenly you're in a really quiet space and something really important's about to happen. Right, and that's when it gets quiet, you know it's about to get dangerous or mm -hmm. something big and you can feel that. Um, we do have a clip, another clip that kind of just shows that cacophony, as you described it, of New York City that, that's created. So let's take a listen. What is all this? What happened? Sorry, Where's that grid, officer? Right, I'm working on it. We're working and on it. And tell fucking Kaidi Tong and the fucking 11 o'clock news brigade over there to get off of my crime scene. Copy that. Hey, Tommy. Go eat shit, okay? Yeah, great to see you again, too. How's the beach house? Absolutely. Not now, kids. I wanted you to see this with your own eyes. Look up. Holy shit. Tell me those aren't Latin kings. All three. Two of them capos. When's the last time you saw a hanging? From a subway platform in the heart of the king's turf? Never. Thought I said I wanted them down. Happening imminently. One at a time, all right? Bring the young one down first. Mind taking a look at this one? What for? Identification. Why would I know him? You were right earlier. You're in danger. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, my favorite thing about that clip is I live in New York City and there's that rumble of the train that is like omnipresent. And I just love how that was incorporated. You can feel it in the bass, but you can also just, it just kind of flavors the whole scene. I just thought that was genius. I don't know. Uh, Ethan, does it sound like the New York that, that you know? Yeah, and it, it, I, I agree with you too. I just love the, the layers that you guys put. Sometimes the sound of like, oh, there, there's a playground. Mm -hmm like two blocks away, you know, like that, the, just all the little details and the way it changes, the way New York changes, it, the sound never stays the same, even if you're sitting on the same corner. The sounds always, it just evolves in New York. It's always turning, it's always changing, and you, and you feel that, and you can create intimacy, and you can create wide shots, you can create, I mean, it's, it's really fascinating. I worked with Sidney Lumet, <clears throat> He's made a lot of great crime dramas um, in his career. You know, well, Dog Day Afternoon or Serpico, Prince of the City. And he used to always say that a really great film should be able to be listened to. You know, that if you should be able to turn off the image and close your eyes and see the movie. Mm. And in likewise, you should be able to turn off the sound and watch it and it would be great. It's like when a, when a movie's excellent, both of them work actually on their own. And then you put them together and this, and this other thing can happen. Uh, and you guys just do it so well, but it's so much more challenging on when you're doing it audio because you have to imagine it all. 
Mm-hmm. Like if you're filming it, you're like, okay, well, they're really there. There's really cars going by. There's really kids in the background. There really is a bell in front of the door when you mm-hmm. open it. Or, and you, you have to create all of that. And, and that's what makes it such an accomplishment. I mean, that's what I love about it. What's interesting, too, I think, and thank you, um, process-wise, we, we approached it like we were doing a, a scripted TV show or a movie in that we storyboarded every scene. Wow. Um, Every, every scene, you know, movement, if you're going into a space, we, we really just blocked it, actually, um, which, which helped us in post sort of think about, you know, what, what all those layers, what those scenes would be like. And, and we tried to use sound to, to always propel story, not just, you know, we're in a cafe, we're in a bodega. Um, all the sounds that are in there are in there for a reason, and, and it's to propel the, the scene work. Um, but it's like those little subtle, like you said, the, the, the little bell on the door and you know the sound of the cash register. Like those things are really important details, and, and we had to make sure that it wasn't you know the sound of a cash register from 2010. Right. You know what did it sound like in 1993? It was still this you know mechanical maybe electric, but very specific kind of sound. And, and the post team, you know, God bless them, they spent a lot of time, a lot of time um, finding those authentic sounds that made this whole sort of sonic tapestry. Yeah, I like how you mentioned movement because there's scenes where you're in an apartment and they're moving from room to room and you can feel distinct shifts in the room because of the, the air that they create with the sound, you know? And there, you can just tell that there's a lot of work of, it's really easy to make transitions with music. And that does happen, but there's a lot of just transitions with like the changes in levels of sound that I just thought was really powerful. Yeah, and we had a, you know, we had a lot of flashbacks also. I think, you know, the storytelling is very non-linear. Um, it, it really did bounce around uh, quite a bit in, in, in time. Um, and you know when you're dealing with visuals, it's you know quite easy to do that, right? It's filtered. It's you know you you know you're going back, and in this we had to think of ways to sort of cue that to the viewer without being too over the top and too expositional, like oh now I'm going back in time, like that would be idiotic, right? <laughs> um, so um, we we tried to think about what that rewinding kind of feel would be. Um, it's sort of like this rewinding whirlpool of sound that then takes us into the flashback, and instead of it being this really rich immersive you know, stereo sound, it would go into more of kind of a, a deadened mono kind of feel. Um, and we would try to suck a lot of the, the air out of it. Um, and it's, you know, it's subtle, but when you hear it, you, f- you do feel that you're in a different time, in a different place. Um, and, and we did a lot of experiments to try to kind of figure out what the perfect kind of flashback sound would be. And it, it was really difficult to, to kind of nail it, but I, I think we did. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a complicated story. It's not the kind of story that you can, you know, have a conversation with someone else and be listening to it and come back to it. Like, you really do have to listen, mm-hmm. but not in a, not in a way that it's, it's work. You know, you want to listen. It's like when you're watching something great and then someone starts talking, you're like, no, 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 like this, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, if you if you miss a minute or two, like you've definitely missed story, and you've, yeah. you've got to go back. Because it's a, this is a drama, it's a gritty drama. We're dealing with like heavy themes of redemption and grief, grief and loss, and what are some other themes? Like you, you have to pay attention because you're so emotionally engaged with what these characters are experiencing. And it's complicated. I mean, those plays through time are really complicated, and you're dealing with intergenerational ways that their emotional lives are impacting their kids. Yeah. And, and so, I don't know, that was uh, beautifully put, what you just said. I, I find that really interesting about how you, that you would storyboard out something that wasn't, you weren't gonna shoot. I, th I find that really remarkable and that is why it works. I mean, the reason why you're sensing those room tones is because mm -hmm. you're, you're imagining that they went from the kitchen to the living room and now they're standing by the window and all that stuff, all those dynamics are at play in a movie, but they're never in, at play in an audio, audible experience because people don't imagine it that completely. Right. Uh, we needed a roadmap. That's really what it came down to because it, it is so complicated, particularly when there are scenes where, you know, you're, you're in a fifth floor walk-up apartment and then, you know, we're following you going up the stairs several flights to get to the roof and open the door and, you know, you can't just sort of foley in the sound of, you know, feet going up wooden <laughs> stairs. <clears throat> and, and you know, to your point before, Brittany, about, you know, the, the, the sound of doors closing and, and air, you know, going away. It's like it made it easier for us to, to, to build that environment because we knew what we knew what the map was. Mm -hmm. um, and without that map, you know, I feel like you don't know it as a listener why it's happening, but you can you can get lost and, and you don't know why you're lost. And it's it's because, you know, you're not on you're not being taken down the path in the right way. Mm -hmm. And and so we've really approached, you know, the, the material like we're making a, a movie, mm -hmm. but for your ears. And, and really, again, it's that theater of the mind. It's activating that part of your brain that kind of dies when you're just staring at screens and reacting to stuff as opposed to like using your imagination and, and building that world in your mind. Just the same experience when you're reading a great book mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, you see the movie and you're like, oh, this is awful. They've <laughs> totally destroyed this, <laughs> you know. This definitely triggers your imagination uh, in the way that I think the pandemic triggered creativity and imagination for a lot of us. So Ethan, for you, I know you worked on different projects during the pandemic, but how did that trigger creativity? How did you have to be... How did you have to approach things differently because of the constraints of the pandemic? And how did that inspire creativity for you? I don't know. We all just adjusted the best we could in the given days that we were hit with. I'm going to be really curious to see what the long-term effects are. I mean, obviously with our kids, what has it been like? What did they lose? What did they gain? You know, are we going to find that people's children's imaginations leapt? Or did their social skills drop so much that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a push and pull uh, for me, you know, I made this documentary about Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward over the pandemic, and it was wonderful. My wife and I were working on it, and we had this project, because you could do that from, I mean, I could watch their movies, I can sit there and yeah. Google all their old interviews, and I have a feeling, no matter how good or not good the documentary turns out, it will be a lot better because of the pandemic. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, I put a lot more time yeah. into it than I probably would have. Right. And, um, and I don't know, I'm really glad that that happened to me. I gained a lot from that and I learned a lot about editing. Um, 
it's fun to watch. You can't stop human beings from being creative. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just, you just can't stop us. And I love, you know, just how hard you guys were working to get this, this thing done. I'm working on the documentary, Pete, and I see people all over the world making stuff, yeah. making shit happen. And um, they're going to find a way to communicate with each other. That's just what we're going to do. How did uh, the pandemic or the, this period inspire creativity for your team? Because you had to make a lot of adjustments that you wouldn't have probably normally had to make. Yeah, no, it completely transformed every part of, yeah. of how we were going about production in a, in a really profound way, in a really positive way, frankly. Because in the pre-pan world, we would have been, you know, definitely wanting to be in studio with you, you know, doing it in New York or in L.A. And, and you know, and most likely we would have had other actors playing opposite you and and it would have been more of that sort of multicast recording um and you know even even to the point where you know our our office you know pre-pan you know everyone's driving across la to get to this place and takes some people an hour to get there back and forth and particularly for our editors and sound designers it just seemed even before the pan hit we were like this is dumb people are wasting hours and hours of their day and their you know life is short you don't want to spend you know a day of the week just driving to get to work that's lame um and so it it really accelerated our thinking and uh everyone went remote i don't think we're ever going back into an office Mm -hmm. because why why would we Mm -hmm. um you know we've been much more productive and people are happier because they're you know at home generally and it's like we'll have a hybrid of some kind but you know it it also challenged us to um just rethink everything about how we put things together. And so, uh, you know, we have editors and sound designers all over the country and and the world now. And beforehand, we would have probably just been looking for folks who were local, who again could drive and get into this building, which seems so silly at this point. (laughs) I love that it inspired that creativity. And then we have Fish Priest as the result, which is this really creative, beautifully soundscaped Audible original. Uh, Before we go to Q&A, and we are going to do some questions from the audience. So if you are interested, um, take this time to line up at the mic. But Ethan, I just want to come to you for this last question. What is your take on the world of podcasting and audio? Um, are you excited about the future and the potential that's there? I mean, it sounds like you had a really unique and cool experience with Fish Priest. Is it something you want to do more of? Yeah, I really want it to be successful so we get to see what happens to my character. Uh, I, uh, I don't know, I have a, four kids and they love, I'm watching them, they love it. Mm-hmm. You know, my daughter walks around the house listening to books on tapes or podcasts and things like that. And her brain is so alive and awake and it is so much better than watching her just stare at a screen like a zombie or something. And she she wants to talk about them when they're over and share and tell what happens. And, I, and my older daughter has that too. With And so I'm watching them I don't know, something good is happening with it. And I, there is an opportunity to make meaningful substantive art in this way. Uh, and it will perhaps create more pockets for more originality, mm-hmm. you, you know, where everything isn't dumbed down to be just for everyone. You can find your specific audience and give them what they want. So I'm really hopeful. Yeah. I, I do think it's unexplored terrain. Uh, it was left behind, you know, when the moving image took off. Mm-hmm. And, 
and something was lost, then I think we might find it. I think we found Hallelujah. it. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, we have a question right here. Uh, hi. Uh, in the same way that like a filmmaker wants uh, their movie to be seen in a theater, what do you guys think the kind of ideal or like definitive wow. way to consume uh, or consume this uh, audio uh, experience is? Driving from El Paso to Santa Fe. <laughs> that would be the perfect experience. I want you looking at the desert, doing something you enjoy, but disappear. I, I don't know, do you? I love what you just said. I, I, I would just add in the middle of the night, actually. In the middle of the yeah. night, yeah. Because the desert's really creepy in the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah. And, and you have to stay alert and not accidentally hit a deer. Yep. So you gotta be there, but, but the, the story is gonna penetrate in here. I really think wherever you want, that's the benefit, you know? You know, some lame flight that you're on could be turned into one of the best days of your life, hopefully, or some, you know, that's what I love about it, is you don't have to be anywhere. I do think it could be kind of cool, though, to get a lot of people into a space and put on a visor so you can't open your eyes in the darkness and just play it and have, have that sort of shared experience even though it's so personal and intimate to what's going on in your ears, I would be interested what that would be like in a group setting. But I still think the desert's probably the best way to go. <laughs> in the middle of the night. Yeah. Thank you. Um, hello. Um, thank you for telling the Budapest part of the story because <laughs> I'm the resident of Budapest and it makes me kind of proud. So uh, some, some of the Budapest vibes got into the, this audio book or audio drama. Um, it's, I, can, I can feel some, some how the 80s New York could look like when I walk, walk in certain streets of Budapest. But my question is that, how does the past prod look like? So what phases are there? Or, or how does a team look like? Or what roles do they have? In terms of post-production? In terms of post-prod, yeah. So we, we, we've talked, talked about a lot about the recording and what comes after the recording since uh, until... Sure. Even, actually, just taking a step back, even, even before the actual recording, we, we like to do a table read with, you know, not the actors who are ultimately going to be in the piece, but we, we do sort of a, a dry run of the whole thing and we record the whole thing, and then we actually start editing it. We, we edit the whole thing um, so that, you know, if there's any challenges with the script or anything that doesn't make sense, you know, that emerges really quickly. Uh, it also allows the post team to get a head start on just, you know, rough drafting what, this, what the sound worlds are going to be like. And because we did it, you know, much like I think you do in animation, you know, we had over 80 roles, um, so, you know, 80 different actors, and we recorded each of them individually uh, with, with other actors reading, you know, for the other roles. So we were, you know, really obsessed with every, every line, every sentence. So by the time, you know, everything had been recorded and, and in the can, we had already, you know, had a really great head start on, on where all of Post was going. Um, and sort of each of our sound designers and, and editors um, were almost like little pods. And, and they would sort of, you know, get different scenes and then trade them and swap them. And, you know, we, we really try to approach it with, with as little ego as possible. Um, and, and just we're, we're all trying to figure out this really complex puzzle. 
Um, and it's, it's been really cool actually to, to see how all these different personalities have come together because just like me, like most of the people working in the space, you know, haven't been working in the space for 20 years. They come from TV, they come from film, they're writers, they're playwrights, um, there's motorcycle mechanics. I mean, we, we've got a really unique crew um, and, and everyone just, I think, got really excited about rising to this creative challenge, sort of cracking this nut that felt like hadn't really been cracked before. So long story short, we you know, made it up as we went, but um, <laughs> it, it seemed to work. Thank you. Really quick, a question from here that kind of tacks onto that. Did you get any rehearsal time or did you just show up and you're like, let's roll? Well, what's fun about it is it's not live, so we could rehearse as we go. It's, gotcha. it's kind of the way I feel about making movies sometimes. It's like we're shooting the rehearsal and then they edit the best yeah. stuff of rehearsal. It's like the whole thing was rehearsal mm. in, in a way. And then you just, you, you know, they take the best of what we accomplished in the studio. So I, I just try to look at the whole thing yeah. like a rehearsal. Yeah, that's cool. Next question. Hi, this has really been terrific. Uh, when creating something episodic like this, do you feel obligated to have a cliffhanger at the end of every episode? And if so, is that frustrating or limiting? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Yeah. I think um, it, it sort of depends on, on the distribution in a way. And, and what I mean is, like with if, if we're making a traditional podcast and it was going out and we were releasing it week by week, um, then yeah, we might have thought more about like that sort of what's going to happen next episode. But because we had you know the luxury of this eight episode, you know thirty minute every every episode, we had a lot of time and, and runway to to build story and really be in, in the worlds with these characters. And we didn't feel like at the end of every episode you had to have some oh my god what what happens next kind of moment because. The way it works, you know, with with Audible, is it just it goes into the next episode pretty pretty seamlessly, mm -hmm. um, which I th think actually really benefited the creative because coming from you know previous when I was in television, it's like you're making these shows and you're you've got five act breaks every hour and there's all these artificial kind of formats that you have to you have to adhere to, and with this we really just embraced you know it can be anything. Like, let's just play with it. And there are no rules, really. As long as it works, it works. Great, thank you. Thank you. I'll add, though, there was good tension at the end of each episode where I was like, I need to know what's happening next. You want it to function yeah. like a great novel where yeah. the chapter ends and you want to keep reading, but you also want to have some sense of conclusion. That's what, and what it, yeah. It, it's, we all love a great cliffhanger ending, but more often than not, I feel manipulated by them. Mm. And you see yeah. the... You see the architecture of this thing you're watching, like, all right, you were dying to get me to watch the next one, so you're ending before you should have. You, you, right. you know, and you just feel manipulated. Yeah. And the perfect ones where you feel like the story's happening by itself, and, and if you yeah. don't have that much pressure to do a cliffhanger, the writer gets to tell their story yes. without Absolutely. you know, faking it. Yeah, go for it. Hi, good morning. Um, out of curiosity, I was just wondering how much of this of the sound you actually did Foley, because I know a lot of movies rely heavily on Foley versus going out and finding sounds that you were saying you needed to find something authentic or from that time period. So I was just wondering what the balance was with that. I don't know if I could say the exact percentage, um, 
but I would say probably three quarters of it was was recorded in in the wild. Um, we really had a strong aversion to library and sound effects. No offense to library and sound effects folks, they're they're great. But I think in in the spirit of doing something really different, you know, we were experimenting. This whole thing was a creative experiment, frankly. You know, at the end of the day. Um, and, and we were sort of, you know, amazed uh, that at, at every challenge we faced, we, we would sort of come up with something that felt like worked. Um, and I think because of, because of the pan in many ways, um, and because we had the, the, the time to really devote to this, um, we, we did take a lot of time to, to just go out and collect and, and try to find these sounds that, that would be really unique. And, and again, Tom Monahan, who mixed uh, and, and sound designed this, you know, he, he, his former life was a, a record producer and, and musician, um, you know, not a podcast editor or Foley artist. Um, and so I think just by nature of the fact that, you know, that's not the world that we were coming from, that wasn't our go-to sort of set of tools. Mm -hmm. awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next question. Well, first of all, I love the idea. It's just coming back from what it used to be and a new art form that can just blossom and be new. But how many people are in the crew? Like, what does it take to really do this? Mm. I mean, you know, one person could do it or, you know, 30 people could do it. I, I would say we, we had, you know, five or six really dedicated editors and, and sound designers on it. Um, I, I think where the numbers really became heavy were, you know, the, the number of roles and actors. I think, you know, when we, when we started the project, I don't know if it really dawned on all of us that, you know, having 80 different actors uh, was a heavy lift. Um, we we certainly uh, learned that lesson. Um, so it you know, and we give all the credit to the actors who threw themselves into it and you know delivered incredible performances over Zoom. I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, like it's absurd. Um, it's actually outrageous that <laughs> you know you performed to the level you did um, with the time we had. It was just you know you're brilliant. Like frankly, just absolutely brilliant. Um, so it took a lot of actors. It, it doesn't take, you know, a, a huge crew of people. And again, that's like a really liberating thing, having come from TV where you're used to having 50, 100, 200 people on, on this thing. And suddenly, you know, it's like, yeah, we got five people. Like, let's, let's figure it out. But there's also not the budget, right? It's not a $100 million thing. Um, it's, it's much less, you know, a lot less zeros. But in, in that sort of zone lies opportunity to just be incredibly creative. And I think that's also what's so great about this medium is it's accessible. You know, it's it's a really democratic in many ways. If if you are passionate, you can make this thing. You know, the barrier to entry, it's not thousands of dollars to go buy a mic and, and all this. You can spend hundreds of dollars and and you know edit it on your phone if you want. And and I think that's just a really cool place to be creatively for for the community and and I just I can't wait to see you know what other people are doing with you know two people three people a, a really good way for people to show what they can do 
Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And, and to see Ethan flex, you know, your, your acting abilities in that environment, you know, we were really concerned not having, you know, the director there. And we thought, you know, should we fly him there to, to be in, in the room? And, you know, uh, none of that ended up being necessary, but it's also, a, you know, just a testament to working with someone like Well, you need a few, a few people to be really dedicated, like that sound mixer. Yeah. Somebody's got to geek out and, and be obsessed with this project. And you could tell he was obsessed with the sonic landscape of the show. I mean, he was obsessed with right. making it sound right. And, and the, the writer was obsessed with the writing. He had a story he wanted to tell. It was clear to him. It was vivid. And that obsession, they could deliver that into the sound of this show and they could put their passion into it. It doesn't take that many people. It just takes somebody to really care. Mm -hmm. But with so few people, if anything goes wrong, you know, you're really screwed. <laughs> so, you know, thankfully our engineer in Budapest was incredible. Um, but, he was you know, good. He was really good. They're not all incredible, right? Yeah. Like we've had some recordings where, you know, the guy forgets to hit the button or, you know, whoops, I only recorded Zoom. And, you know, yeah. these things can happen. Um, not a lot of room for error, you know, when, when the stakes are really high, but you know, so much of this comes down to just luck and timing and, you know, being tapped in to work with, with great creators and, and, and great technicians and, you know, artists really, we really approach this like an art project. How, how long did it take? Oh gosh. Um, hmm. Once the script was written. Once the script was written, um, hmm. Five, six months, probably. Wow. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. We probably have time for just one more, um, so go for it. Great. Uh, I, I'm intrigued as to what Audible saw in your script that would want them to pick it up. And I'm also looking at the timeline here. Was it before or after Ethan? It's a good question. Uh, I don't know if I can speak to what they saw, but I think I would say, I mean, it was the writing, really. It really gets back to the writing. Um, Mike Batistic is a, a brilliant writer and had proven himself on shows like The Americans and The Affair. Uh, he came from uh, being a playwright. He you know, produced a, a number of plays before moving into television. And I think the vision that we brought to Audible was, was something, you know, hopefully really unique. Um, it certainly did not hurt to have, you know, Ethan's interest in, in the project. It, it, you know, it's like with these things, I, I look at them like constellations of, of stars and, and when one sort of star falls out of that constellation, the whole thing can sort of go to, go to crap. Um, but the, the constellation stayed together and, and we assembled you know, this, this package that we really tried to make undeniable when, when we brought it to Audible. We've got, you know, this incredible series of scripts, this incredible writer, this incredible, you know, acting talent, um, and, and all of these other artists and sound designers coming together. And, and you know, God bless Audible for, for buying the vision and, you know, again, just giving us the resources to, to do it on this level. Um, yeah. Thank you for your question. And, and Kelly and Ethan, I want to thank you both for uh, diving into the world of Fish Priest and just explaining the process. I think it's just fascinating how everything came together to make this beautiful piece of work. And Ethan, when does it come out? Comes out 
May 19th. Yeah. That's the big day. So if you guys are excited to listen to Fish Priest, the audio, Audible original, it will be released on May 19th. And if you want for, more information, go to audible.com slash fishpriest. Put your hands together for Ethan. You are wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. Thank you, everybody.